Dear listeners, welcome at this eighth episode of Meet the Expert podcast series. And in this series, Meet the Expert, together with well-known experts from all over the globe, we explore challenges and opportunities in the big veterinary world. This episode is the first of two podcasts we are recording together with Associate Professor Daniel Linares of Iowa State University in the USA. A well-known global expert on PRRS virus, today's podcast will revolve about monitoring of the virus in sow farms. And in the next episode, there will be attention for the PRS virus classification and how to break the chain of infection. The Meet the Expert podcast series is a co-production of Böhring Ingelheim Animal Health in cooperation with Big Progress. My name is Vincent Terbeek. I'm editor for Big Progress and I shall be the host of today's episode. And present at this podcast as well is audiovisual editor Iris Hoffman, and without whom this podcast wouldn't be possible. And you'll hear her as well from time to time. Um, Professor Daniel Linares is Associate Professor and Director of the Graduate Education at Iowa State University. He started his academic career at the Universidade Federal de Goiás in Brazil, where he got his DVM, and via an MBA and later a PhD in veterinary population medicine at the University of Minnesota, he found his way to Iowa, where he's been working for over seven years. As said, we are going to talk about PERS virus and particularly about monitoring in farms today. Before I do so, I think every listener is very well aware of the PERS virus and what it can do on a farm, but you've published a lot about PERS virus. Um, you may have a profound interest for the PERS virus as well. What makes the virus so interesting for you? Well, first of all, thank you for having me, Vincent. It's a, it's a great pleasure for me to, to uh, talk with you. I've, I'm a big fan likewise, of your work. Likewise. And I've been following the Meet the Expert series too. It has been really good. And so uh, before we jump there, I also got to say that your Brazilian Portuguese accent is really good. So... <laughs> So you, I've, I've been practicing on the word universidade. Yeah, that, that sounds good. <laughs> uh, so you asked about uh, what uh, what's my interest of the virus, right? And I will I would say that it's uh, not not so much about the virus itself. It's about the problem. I'm fascinated mm -hmm. with this uh, problem of populations of populations and how to ac accurately accurately classify the activity of uh, uh, activities of a uh, pathogens like PERS virus, right, and uh, allow, uh, generate data and information to allow producers and veterinarians to quickly and effectively respond and recover from the infection. So that's what, what attracts me is that population uh, puzzle that PERS mm -hmm. brings us to, to work with. But uh, it could be any, any kind of virus that well, attracts your interest, or is PERS then the number one disease for you in this field? Yeah, PERS is the number one here for us because PERS is the number one for producers and veterinarians. It is the most economically important pathogen affecting the, the U.S. and the Latin America swine industry. That's where I spend mm -hmm. mo most of my time with. So whatever, or keeping the veterinarians and producers uh, wake up at night, that's uh, that's our job to to jump in and try to help them with the, those issues. First, continue to be the, the one. Fire. 
and seeing that the virus is, is still uh, a major problem everywhere, it is also still a major issue on a scientific level. Yes, yes. I see now. Well, we shall speak about the monitoring of virus in sow farms today. Um, in short, what happens on a sow farm when purse is endemic on the farm? So there are different shades of uh, endem end uh, of end the endemic status, right? It, PERS mm -hmm. is one of those that it's beyond just positive and negative. The negative is mm -hmm. easy. There is no virus uh, whatsoever. But the positive or the endemic one, there, are, there will be different shades from ac ac acutely infected to transitioning to a, a more controlled situation where the prevalence tends to be lower. And then... Uh, uh, all the way from zero or ne near zero prevalence, I should say, to no virus circulation, but the virus is still there, present. And uh, and uh, so what happens when the pers are infected? It really it will uh, depend a lot on that on which stage we're talking about, right? In terms yeah, of yeah. impact of clinical impact and pro impact in productivity, really, uh, it's really predictable. It's still a lot of variation in the severity and the magnitude of the of 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 the impact, but it's pretty predictable in, in the sense of the as you transition from acutely infected to decreased prevalence to to stable to provisional negative and negative, your productivity is gonna improve not only in the breeding herd but also downstream to the nurseries and finish. Um, that could be a situation in which, uh, for instance, some barns are still infected and other barns may not be infected, or some 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 pens may be infected, some pens are not, or is the the, the disease pressure then evenly being um, getting lower over the years, over the months? Mm -hmm. Yeah, one thing that purse is is not is uh, equally distributed in in barns, mm -hmm. right? We talk about uh, we talk about the the need to to, to monitor the populations in the different crates and rooms and barns and over time because because we know that's not randomly dis distributed as mm -hmm. the when the first first gets infected it sure it spreads like uh, like fire and then purses quickly goes through through the the different air spaces that there are in the, in the pig barns but as you transition to that uh, a, a controlled or low low prevalence stage then Purse is really slow to, to spread. So it should not be a surprise that in all the way from what you see in pens to what you see in rooms and barns, that that being you may have some affected pigs, you may have all but none, you but you you may have uh none but one infected in the crate, and the same thing over the crate uh, uh, between the pens and the rooms and the barns. Yeah, yeah. So you see a, 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 a scattered pattern uh, as to some some animals may be infected and others not. And and it, even in that last stage, and then I'll stop about it. But uh, will you also have animals that are subclinically infected that you don't really see any 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 signs? But when you would test, you still see oh, there is virus present. Yeah, and that's that's one of the most important things I think for in my opinion for purse is that subclinical. That you that you refer to, right? Or I would say almost subclinical, pseudo subclinical, because you may not see the clinical consequences. The pigs look great. The production numbers are kind of look okay. look okay. Yeah. But if you measure uh, if if you measure 
closely here, both in the breeding herd and more so in the downstream, uh, whenever the prevalence is not zero, right? As long as you have virus circulation, there will be there will be uh, uh, in impact of the disease in terms of production and clinical and economical in economic impact. I see. I see. Well, that is already a, quite a good introduction to my next question. I think because uh, yeah, producers or veterinarians may walk through the farm and well, may may think, oh, everything looks fine, but that doesn't always mean that purse is completely gone. It may be even in a scattered couple of animals or, yeah, it, it may still be there. So in short, why is it necessary to monitor purse virus in endemic herds? So be, just because uh, it, it is subclinical, right? If you, you can't trust, mm. you, you cannot trust your eyes, like you said, so if you don't monitor, you don't know what's the purse activity in terms of uh, what's that level of endemicity that we're, we're talking about. Is it a higher prevalence, medium, low? And uh, again, those uh, the level of endemicity is really, it's a good proxy of whole herd productivity, not only due to purse, but due to the other co-infections that typically goes along with, with purse, right? Including your mycoplasma, high pneumonia, your circovirus, yeah. your influenza, your other uh, respiratory and systemic systemic agents. So if you don't measure, you you don't know at that point in time where your prevalence is decreasing. You're you're endemic. Yeah. Your look pigs are looking great. You really need diagnostics to 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 measure right what you can expect in terms of productivity and balance your health interventions in terms of your immunologic solutions and your changes in big flow to kind of control that infection chain as much as you can. I see. The infection is also a living organism almost that it kind of it increases and decreases in in heavy uh, in in yeah in in status and well how much is present how less is present. Right. Um I would like to ask my colleague Iris to join in because I would like to introduce here a, a question from a veterinarian. Exactly. Yes, we have a question from a veterinarian, uh, and that is in times of low pork prices, producers need to cut costs and sometimes consider to reduce vaccinations. Is it true that my return on investment is still higher with piglet plus so vaccination than with so vaccination only? Well, great question. And I would say that uh, it depends on the stage of the infection, on the pressure of, of infection uh, and on the virulence of the wild type virus that's affecting the, the pigs. So in, in, uh, in short, if, if there is evidence of uh, a highly uh, or a, a virulent wild type being circulated, right? And I, would, I wouldn't see the vaccine as a cost. I would see it as an investment because uh, several experimental and field trials has demonstrated the ability of the of the modified live virus vaccine to reduce the clinical consequences and therefore productivity and economics of, of production. Yes, thank you. Vincent, I think you have some more questions about this. I do, I do. And thanks for this uh, intervention. That's, uh, that, that's good to have. Um, well, in order to, to, to have a proper um, vaccination plan, I think you need to know, as we discussed, where the virus is 
happening and and well, how much we have in the how much virus we have. Um, I understand there are at least six methods and applications that could do with some deeper analysis to or how to determine the um, PERS virus levels in a farm that is endemic. Um, I suggest we let us review these methods step by step and yeah, discuss the pros and cons that you may find. Um, the first one I think you want to discuss is the one of is uh, the use of production data. Uh, what could you explain about that method? Yeah, production data. It's pretty much you know considering that PERS virus causes that uh, again depending on the magnitude of depending on the wild type, depending on the level of herd immunity of the herd, you you impact in different uh, levels the productivity. But almost all the times you will see an impact in terms of uh, increased abortions or pre-winning mortality or what we call the neonatal losses, right? Which is the sum mm -hmm. of uh, ab yeah. ab uh, mummies and stillbirths. Something's gonna happen in, in those parameters. And the other one that, uh, that we've been monitoring closely is sows that are off feed or they're are mm -hmm. not getting up to eat. Those are one of the first in indicators. And uh, it, uh, I think much more than five years ago, and I think five years from now it will be even more, we see producers going to have their productivity uh, records right in the in the cloud, some sort of computer computer base that are on the cloud. Mm -hmm. And everything that's on the yeah. cloud today is, is uh, you know, in other words, you can you can monitor, you can apply algorithms to detect early changes on such parameters. Comparisons with historical data, for instance, and then you see there is a there is a slight drop in performance. Exactly, each farm is has got to be compared to 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 it to 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 that farm itself, right? Like you said, mm -hmm. uh, baseline parameters in terms of number number of aborts per week may be very different between two different farms, but. If you know the baseline for the uh, for the farm, you can monitor that and and uh, very similar to a, a couple of podcasts ago, Dr. Amanda Sponheim right talked about the use of sound talks, which is a, a diff, uh, another great method to monitor populations. You establish the baseline, you keep monitoring over time, and when there is the spike, that there is spikes either in sound or in number of sounds of feed or one of those production records then you, you got a, a yellow flag or a red flag. They're not gonna be per specific, but at least it's a, it's a sound, hey producer, talk with your vet, understand what's going on, maybe purse, maybe flu, maybe something else, go, go and verify what's going on, right? And you can do that there daily you uh, if you want or weekly, depends on how the mm -hmm. data is organized in the, in the cloud. I see. Um... Shall we go to the second um, method that that one could use to detect that there is something going wrong and what's going on with the with the purse levels in the, in um, purse virus levels in a farm? Um, that's the use of processing fluids. I think. How, how does that work? Yeah. So the just stepping back, the production data is going to be good to not for the it's not so for the endemic farms, but the negative ones, the naive ones, those will be early signs of something that got introduced or for those farms that are that are undergoing elimination the expectation is that they're going to recover and keep uh keep consistently uh keep consistency in, in productivity so any unexpected uh, uh increases in some of those productivity records 
uh, now you want to understand if it's a reintroduction of or re recirculation of the same virus or introduction of a new mm -hmm. one, so on and so forth, right? Now, going to the, the diagnostic monitoring methods, processing fluids, it's, uh, it's a pretty convenient way people from around the globe uh, utilize that uh, method of collect testing those fluids from derived from castration and tail docking. Right, so you're talking about pigs, mostly males, in a two, five, up to seven days of age, and so really good uh, monitoring method because it represents hundreds of uh, of piglets. And if you're looking for uh, by monitoring using PCR-based methods, PCR, of course, they amplify the the target, so it's a really good way to screen hundreds of uh, of pigs with with uh, one or or few few samples so yeah very very good way to screen big populations of fish if uh, efficiently and uh including several rooms and uh barns and over time mm -hmm. and would then typically be all animals be uh, be, be um or would you do, do take samples from every barn how how would that work yeah we, we would recommend considering uh, samples or collecting those processing fluids from as many liters, as many uh, 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 rooms and barns that there uh, uh, are available in that uh, week. Yeah. And it's per perfectly fine to collect the samples uh, daily, then uh, store them in freeze, uh, in fridge or freezer and submitting for uh, one aggregate pool of the whole week. As long as you're yeah. testing positive, you keep monitoring those CTs over time. And what you want to see is a, uh, a raise of CTs, right? So in other words, uh, positivity started starts to go from high positive to low positive. And uh, eventually those, those PCR tests are going to return negative. And that's uh, mm -hmm. one of the early signs that you were controlling efficiently the poor circulation in your system. I see, I see. So bit by bit, and you will only know this as long as you keep collecting the, the processing fluids there. Right. Okay, let's go to the third method. And with that, we go back to an earlier podcast we did in this series. That's of Dr. Jordi Baellas of Spain. And he did all everything about tongue tip sampling. Could you explain a little bit about that method? Yeah, great, uh, great, great guy, great collaborator, a great person, right, Jordi? We, I had the, the privilege to meet him earlier this year in Spain, and that's where uh, he, he, he shared with us the, his experiences with the tongue tip sampling. Makes a lot of sense. We're implementing here in the U.S. too and finding very, very similar results. And uh, just to bring the listeners up to speed that may not be familiar with tongue tips, it just consists of, as the name suggests, uh, cut the, the tip of the tongues, maybe uh, two centimeters from the, the carcasses, right, from the, de the dead animals. And in any farm, of course, there will be animals, dead, dead, dead animals of uh, different age groups, but certainly more so of those uh, really stillbirths or neonatal pigs, those really young ones. And those will be a, a very good reflection, too, of the sow herd. Uh, per status, right? Because processing fluids, for example, it's it's a great screening method, like we said. But then, when you have positive results in pigs of uh, about a week week old, you wonder did did the infection come from the sow herd? 
that it was the infection in the farrowing barn and then pigs got infected laterally, right? And so with tongue tip sampling specifically from stillbirth and neonates, you you know for sure it came from the sow herd if it if that's positive. So that's a good that's a good way to screen the assess the vertical transmission, right, from sows to, to piglets. And uh, of course, if you don't castrate pigs, that's a good alternative too, because processing fluids it's more so uh, testicle fluids than than a tail a tail tail docking fluid. Especially if you do it right, there there will be virtually no no blood there. So tongue tips may be good alternative to processing fluids as well as a, a great tool to assess vertical transmission, and uh, you you're not locked in that processing fluid age. Right, that ends at uh, five, six, seven days of age. You could collect those that assess those dead pigs, uh, uh, purse activity in those dead pigs of of uh, different age groups. Sounds all very logical. Um, I understand there is also a method called uh, FOF or family oral fluids. What what uh, what, could, what can you tell about that method? Yeah, so coming back with this screening method, right? Either with processing fluid or tongue tips. Those are very sensitive, practical, e efficient ways of, of monitoring. But then once those are testing negative for a few weeks, say three, four, five weeks consecutive, you, you, you wonder, hey, that's great, but what's the status, the per status of the winning age pigs, right? Because then you, you, pigs may be born negative, may be, still be negative at around processing time, but then if Pigs, uh, if with the uh, movement of pigs and supplies and pigs across rooms, they may not be uh, negative at weaning. So family oral fluids consists of hanging a rope, same, uh, a rope where the, both the sow and the baby piglets have ac uh, access to that rope. And in our hands here, it works best with pigs around weaning age where they are old enough to interact and leave saliva in, uh, or oral fluids in, the, in that rope. So it's a great way to verify the status of pigs at weaning. A great alternative to bleeding. People could also collect uh, serum samples from weaning age pigs, of course. But at that point in time, when you are, uh, when you have negative processing fluid, negative tongue, tongue, tongue tips, and then you want to just have an extra assurance that there is no PERS activity in the barn. If PERS is still there, it's going to be a very low prevalence. Right? It's not going to be 10%, 20% or higher. It's going to be really, really low, below 5%. So you would need several, right? Uh, maybe sometimes even hundreds of serum samples to, to be able to detect uh, the virus at low prevalence. And so that's where family oral fluid comes. It's not as practical as processing fluid, but much more practical than, than serum sampling. So you hang 12, 15 ropes, you get 10 or 12 back. And uh, that's going to give you a uh, very good sensitivity to detect the virus, even at low prevalence. At I, the see, I see. And it's not, it's not invasive, I suppose. No, just an oral fluid. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you already mentioned the serum sampling, and you also, it is known as the gold standard. Um, why is that called the gold standard? Yeah, good question. PERS is a virus that uh, causes systemic infection. Right, and I think uh, Dr. Stevenson covered that pretty extensively here in the first podcast of the series. But long story short, it causes a systemic infection. It replicates in macrophages, and so 
one of the first steps of the infection is purges in the bloodstream, right? In other words, causing viremia. And so if you want to measure viremia, you, you, you go straight for the serum, right? So, and get the, the and then test that uh, sample by, 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 for PERS RNA by, by PCR. So it's really efficient. The, the, the downside is if prevalence is high, there's no downside. You collect some 10 serum samples, you can pull them. You find the virus with no problem. But when the prevalence is low, uh, below 5%, that's, that's when you start uh, needing uh, se several serum samples, right? So it's time consuming. It's uh, costly. You got to train people, restrain the pigs, one uh, uh, needle per, per pig. And so that uh, that's why those population-based sampling methods, such as family oral fluids, tongue tips, processing fluids came, right? And they're, they're by, by far um, much more used than, uh, than serum samples today. There's still yeah, serum for sampling serum is, samples. Is, is, it's probably accurate, but also time-consuming and costly. Yeah, it, it gives you a better a sample tool for advanced diagnostics. It because just because it's cleaner and uh, it's a uh, it's more more stable matrix for diagnostic lab to 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 work with. But you know, I, I, it's hard to say better or worse. Each one had their their own particularities, and it's good for vets and producers to have the options, right? And they they're gonna use, of course, what makes more sense for them based on the questions they have. Okay, now we've talked about production data uh, and how that can help uh, processing fluids. We talked about tongue tip sampling, family of oral fluids, and the use of serum, serum sampling. Um, there's also a sixth uh, method that we need to discuss, and that's about pooling samples. samples. Um, let us hear what can be said about that. So pooling samples is a strategy to... Uh, how do I say there uh, that uh, maximizing your herd sensitivity without without uh, and, and at the same time making a best use of the the resources right the funds and and the and financial resources so pooling consists of uh, aggregating several of those samples into one and sending to the lab and so what we have learned with uh, uh, field observations and 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 studies and experiments here is that it's uh, there's opportunity to really uh, expand the 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 frequency of, of pooling any of those samples that we talked about, and the reason is when you pull uh, that allows you to with that same uh, same cost and fixed budget. Let's say you have five PCRs, it's much more uh, likely you are much more likely to find the virus if you sample instead of running five PCRs from five individual samples, if you get that, and now instead of one family oral fluids, for example, you collect 25 oral fluids and then do pools of five, and then do, runs your, run your PCRs in, in, in pools of five to have five total reactions, that's, that's uh, you, will, you will in one hand a little, uh, dilute a little bit the, the, the samples if they are positive, but at the other hand, you're also expanding significantly the your coverage instead of doing five crates now you're doing 25 yeah. right so we, we've done uh, uh, and we're not the only ones several labs here have been working on on the effect studying the effects of pooling 
and uh, has been showing that you could pull its samples into in threes, in fives, in tens, all the way to twenties. And as long as you're pulling to uh, cover more crates, more rooms, more barns with that same budget, you're really, really uh, expanding significantly the probability of detection as opposed to not pulling and running less uh, less samples, but, right? Less but coverage. It, but a uh, if there would be a downside, you wouldn't know exactly where it is in the farm if you would kind of pull samples together. Yeah, so if your question, because a lot of times the question is how is purse activity? Is it circulating mm -hmm. or 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 is it yeah. not, right? So when you pull, you would pull preferably the, the samples within the same room, right? Getting uh, di different crates there. Yeah. And you still know where it came from because now if the room has 50 crates, you don't need to sample five, you sample, you sample, you sample them all or you sample a larger subset and then send, send it for pooling. When you send for pooling, you can send it, the samples individually to the lab and ask, hey, running pools in the lab, they're gonna pull that for you. And uh, if you're still interested to say, hey, let me know exactly which crate was positive, and then yeah. you can open up the pools and test individually, right? Depending if, if that matters to you for your investigation, you can still do that. Thank you very much. And uh, that makes all sense. Um, I have two questions at the end for you, but before that, let's bring in Iris one more time because I think she has two questions for you as well. Exactly. Those are a lot of methods I've heard uh, you talking about. Uh, in the meantime, I found exactly two more questions from uh, from our audience. And one of them is, uh, one of the veterinarians asked, how frequently would you advise to apply monitoring? So how frequent to, to monitor? I would say always. It's an ongoing process, uh, right? Considering that monitoring is a combination of your production data, your clinical data, in your in your diagnostic data production and clinical i i don't see a reason to stop monitoring you want to make sure that the pigs are doing fine and great and healthy and diagnostic monitoring you could uh strategically don't do them uh over time to again for the negative one negative herds you want to quickly identify but the endemic ones you want to make sure that the positivity rate is decreasing over time and the ct values or the amount of viruses also go uh the quantity of virus decreasing over time, so raising CT values. If that's not happening, then there are opportunities to change biomanagement practices, biocontainment practices, and immunization strategies to better control the virus. Yes, exactly. Thank you. That makes sense. Um, got another question. Uh, how to monitor replacement guilds end of the acclimat acclimatization period? So assuming that question comes from I'm acclimating the herd to pers virus to, to bring that to the herd, right, with uh, immunization. So what we want to do in that case is number one, number two, and number three. The most important thing is that you've got to come non-shedding, right, not shedding virus. You don't want a, a, a guild to come in and contributing with virus spreading the herd. You want to immunize the herd, the, the guild before and give the guilt a lot, a lot uh, give them a, a, enough time to cool that infection, which takes about two to three months after acclimation. But anyways, when you wanna, the question is right when, how do I uh, monitor that guilt? And uh, a, a, at least here with the producers we talk with, pretty common to use oral fluid sampling. 
So you hang the ropes with uh, to the guild wherever, wherever the guilds are housed, and uh, six or seven, eight ropes would give you enough confidence to detect uh, uh, virus if it's still there, shedding right in oral fluids by PCR. Uh, so it's a pretty simple and effective monitoring process. Perfect. Yes. Well, that were my questions. Uh, back to you, Vincent. Thank you very much. Uh, I'd like to extend a little bit on the, um, on the on this last question on the monitoring of replacement guilds. Um, just in case uh, a total farm has been uh, running a um, successful eradication program, um, what monitoring protocol would you use in the long term to make sure that the farm continues to stay negative? So, so assuming that the herd successfully eliminated the virus yeah. right? and then going forward yeah productive uh daily or weekly productivity data are really good indicators because at that point the herd is fully susceptible to the infection and so any uh activity of the virus should be picked up uh with any of those metrics that we talked about number of cells that are not eating or aborts or the pre-winning the the early mortality the neonatal losses mortality pretty good and for extra assurance for those negative herds, processing fluids or, or, or tongue tips on a weekly or every other week would give extra assurance for the herd. If it's um, provisional negative, meaning it's, uh, there's no virus activity, but there may be still some, piece, some antibody positive, those herds really got to monitor with PCRs. If the herd is truly negative, right, naive, no antibodies, Mm -hmm. then then uh, antibody testing is also uh, an option to, to to give extra assurance that the herd mm -hmm. is hasn't seen the virus recently or or in the or, or in the past i see i see and which method to use i think um listening to your explanation it all depends on the on the the the, the starting situation of a farm i mean if if it's negative obviously the production data is something to look at and as soon as you've had an um an outbreak yeah you you might want to find maybe also a combination of several methods in order to get to 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 understand better in which stage of the production or in which stage of the infection you are, is there one of the six methods that we talked about that is your personal favorite that you feel okay that in my view is the thing that I, I always come back to. Yeah, good question, and I I don't think so. Like you said, I like the way you put that they are complementary, right? It's it's really it's it's good to have those options. So each each method bringing something to to the table, I think that's uh, that's 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 the the beauty of of all all of those combined, right? Mm -hmm. And one thing that we didn't talk about that also, especially for the biological samples, is take advantage of the uh, like you said before, the virus is not randomly distributed, so you got you, you can always go to those risk based. Uh, 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 individuals, whether you're collecting tongue tips or serum samples or family oral fluids, you could go and first hit the guilds from leaders, sorry, the, the leaders from guild for parity one sows, and also the ones with the lower uh, leader size relative mm -hmm. to the herd. Those are two important risk factors if you got to select some, but not all for, for monitoring, you go to those risk uh, risk-based uh, individuals or units, right, for 
your sampling. I see, I see. Well, I look at the clock and I think uh, we'll have to draw this podcast to an end. Otherwise, um, our listeners will, um, will also think, oh, but um, I... Uh, my time is up as well. So we aim to have these podcasts uh, to well, make them about 25 to 35 minutes. Um, so that concludes the first podcast as far as I'm concerned, but we will be back together with the next podcast on PERS virus as well. And in that case, in that moment, that podcast, we will discuss the PERS virus classification as well as the question how to break the chain of infection. Um, Another episode not to be missed, I would say. Um, for now, Professor Linares, I thank you for uh, being with us. And I thank our audience for staying with us during this podcast. And goodbye. And we'll be back soon. Bye.